Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Arizona mixtape just around the corner did a lot in California can't wait to drop this on you yeah they gonna have fun with that smash like song hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One my name is Mark Hamilton joining me today my friend my colleague my neighbor my frenemy Mr. Mark Daly but also also joining as we've been teasing for the last couple of days the one the only the infamous actually infamous is a terrible term the legendary (laughs) tv writer and producer mr seth whiteberg seth uh, to start i'm gonna kick it over to you how the heck are you my friend i'm doing great uh as someone who normally listens to you all on uh two and a half x speed also this is a real joy because you (laughs) you both just sound like you're on barbiturates to me (laughs) now uh but super excited to be here really excited to talk about this show and daily, you're you know, I know you've been incredibly busy. We had a dump of snow here in Vancouver, which is really unusual for the end of February. I called you last night and you were in the yep. middle of a two hour snow shoveling a thon. How's your back, my friend? It's not too bad, but as we sit here right now, it is snowing again outside at my place here because I literally live on the top of a mountain, even though Hammy and I lived at less than, what, 10 minutes away from one another? So, yeah, I, I'm not sure what it's going to be like, but I, you know, my wife is out right now with my daughter at practice, so I'm expecting some sort of message at some point that I may have to go and rescue them, but I think that the snow is literally limited to, to, to my neighborhood for now, but we'll, we'll see what happens uh, come morning. I will certainly take this as an opportunity to remind listeners that Daly lives in what is the Canadian equivalent of a guarded, gated community with a fiercely (laughs) protective HOA. I live at the bottom of the mountain on the wrong side of the railway tracks. So I hear the train screeching by at two in the morning and Daly is up in the mountain enjoying the views and the snow. On that though, the reason we're here today is we've been talking about this for a couple of days. We're here to talk about Drive to Survive. And we did a really cool, well-received preview show last week with Seth. So Seth, thank you so much for that. That was fantastic. But today we're here to talk about our impressions of Drive to Survive Season 5, which of course dropped last Friday. We're sitting here, we're recording Wednesday, March 1st. This will probably drop on Thursday, March 2nd. But Seth, we had kind of debated back and forth about how we wanted to do this. Like a lot of podcasts are doing the reaction, a ton of YouTubers are doing the reactions, all kinds of TikTokers are doing the reactions. But we decided, and by we, I really mean it was your idea, um, you came up with a very cool scheme or idea for us to kind of walk through our impressions and our takeaways from this series. Do you want to take our listeners through how we're going to approach this conversation today? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we, we all have a million takes uh, about this season. And some of them are like little baby takes, no big deal, little light things. Some of them are like real heavy duty, like let's let's take these to the mattresses um, kind of takes. So, so what we've decided to do is we are going to structure this show like a Grand Prix weekend. So we're going to start with our free practice takes. 
you know, just the light little takes, just little things, feeling <laughs> things out, tweaking the setup, checking the different angles, getting comfortable on the track. Uh, then we're going to build up to our, our qualifying takes. You know, that's when the pressure's on a little bit more. We push for performance, just go out, put in a good lap. And then we're going to get to our Grand Prix takes, the big ones. That's when we're, we're going all out, our hottest takes, leaving it all on the track. Uh, and then we're going to have a little cool down lap, you know, just like the little light, little bits, little extra stuff that didn't get in, just nice little stuff to take you home, cool the engines down. So I, I think it's that. pretty obvious that everyone knows that I'm going to be the Q1 kind of guy. I'm not the <laughs> Williams era George Russell comes in and bangs that one out to Q3. I'm not going to be like the rock star that is expected to get you know challenge for a pole. I'm just going to be the disappointing Q1 fizzle out. But I think everybody knows that after about like 400 and something episodes of this podcast, all of which are complete classics, by the way, just to, to self-gloss. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's where the show's going to go. But it should be fun. We're really looking forward to, to doing this. And the uh, kind of relaxed format, I think, should be uh, should be pretty good. Now, before we get started with free practice, and thank you for sliding me a text message in the background daily, I forgot to mention our fantasy league is open. The key, and this is the key, is if you're listening to this before the first Grand Prix, you need to go and sign up now. If you're having any trouble, find us on Twitter, send me a DM, I'll walk you through the instructions, but otherwise, go to our Twitter feed, look at our profile. There are multiple tweets with the link and with the code to join the pool. We are going to announce some fantastic, fantastic prizes in the next couple of weeks. Think one half scale Formula One helmets of your choice, et cetera. So we've got some very cool stuff coming. With that, Seth, you've set up the show. You've teased how we're going to do this. Free practice takes, my friend. I'm going to roll that worn soft tire over to you to get the ball started. Okay. Yeah. Just a slow pull out of the pit lane here for me <laughs> with, with my first take. Okay. So Verstappen was back on Drive to Survive this season. And he, I think he had a quote somewhere in the media that he did like 30 minutes. You know, he sat down for 30 minutes or something. It kind of shows there's not much there. <laughs> but I will say it's such a, a, a proof point about television that like just giving people anything about yourself humanizes you. Cause I am not a Verstappen fan at all. I'm sitting here in a Mercedes shirt. But just getting little bits from him, anything at all that makes me feel like I have some kind of connection to him, made me like him more. I found myself having more sympathy for him um, than ever before. You know, it's like there was this F1 uh, Instagram post today, or I think it was today, that was like first day of school, you know, kind of post with them holding up a chalkboard. And one of the things on it said, like, favorite food. And literally everyone said pizza or burger, except for Verstappen, which said tomato soup and beef carpaccio. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, give us, just just show us your honest, relentless, awful self. Um, and we're going to like you more. And like, by contrast to that, I would say, like, I always think of Helmet Marco as like the Emperor Palpatine of the Formula One pit lane. And like on this show, like you just never hear from the guy. You never see him. You just hear him say like creepy things uh, around in the background. But I guarantee if he sat down and talked to Cameron for a while, we'd like him a little bit more. So well, good job, Max. Yeah, well, I mean, Emperor Palpatine, I mean, let's not forget that he's the one that wanted to have a COVID party a couple of years ago for Max. And, and, and well, I guess who would have been his teammate at the time? It doesn't matter, but I mean, that kind of 
kind of says something but <laughs> anyways i mean yeah i mean max i mean it, it's it, it was funny right i mean as somebody that's interviewed like a lot of athletes over the year it, it really the vibe i got is like he was sitting in chairs like ask me some questions and let's just get this over over with kind of it you know and and the the, the athletes and where anybody that i've always enjoyed like interviewing are the ones that are kind of open up a little bit and show them like a little bit of their personality i mean you don't have to be max for staffing you don't have to be like his ultimate ego like Danny Ricardo who's complete 180 degrees opposite but somewhere in the the, the middle is it is better especially for Max and I guess if it's tomato soup and beef carpaccio then I maybe that's a start my my first free practice take and I think that does a pretty good job of summarizing summarizing or summing up Max's first meaningful appearance on the show in many years but my my first take is kind of a Max related one as well and I think some of the documentary or historical footage that the producers were able to find of Max and Mick vacationing together with their fathers uh, Michael Schumacher and Jos Verstappen um, was very very human and and honestly even a little bit touching. And I uh, particularly appreciated the interview footage that they found of Yoss and and Michael Schumacher, which must have been the late 90s or the early 2000s, where they actually asked them candidly, you know, what, what would you expect of your sons? Or do you want your sons to pursue a career in Formula One? I thought that was all very nice. It was also, and, and this is kind of personal, but I've always worried for Max that he had a very rough, abrasive upbringing with his father. And I don't think we need to relitigate some of the allegations that are out there against his father. But to me, it was really warm to see that there was some normalcy in his childhood, that his family would go on vacation with another family. I thought that was very... Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Nice, and I thought that was uh, very sweet. And boy, was that ever a time warp because that 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 took me back to those days. I mean, uh, you know, obviously it was, it's been a while since the the era of like uh, when, when Schumacher dominated Formula One. But whenever I think of Michael Schumacher, I think of that specific uh, period of time. So, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed that uh, that that little clip there. And, and any of those kind of like uh, family home videos, those, those were cool to see. And like you say, seeing them actually doing something normal together other than Formula One was was a, was a pretty cool moment. 
Seth, I'll kick it over to you because you are next up on our list of free practice takes. Yeah, this is a gentle one. I'll keep this one real quick. And we're going to get, I think, into our bigger takes about the season as a whole and the episodes a little later on. But um, I want to jump to episode nine, which was the cost cap one, uh, which we called, by the way. We, we I thought we did pretty well in our predictions, Hammy. Um, the, uh, I thought it was very strange that they included Zach Brown specifically saying that Red Bull should have sporting penalties. But then when they actually got to the point when the penalties were being distributed, the only thing you hear Horner say, I could be wrong, but my memory serves that the only thing you hear him say is the $7 million fine. And then it's kind of over. I understand if you don't want to get into the whole idea of like the wind tunnel time, like that's a little wonky, I think for the show, but I don't understand why you would have Zach Brown come out and, and keep that sound in of him saying that uh, if you weren't going to actually pay that off. Yeah, it's, it's almost like there was something that was left on the cutting room floor and and just kind of like that whole, we're, we're going to get into this uh, later as we get into, as the takes get hotter, whereas right now they're kind of like a little bit lukewarm. But I, I kind of felt that that a lot of things that, that, that we know as that we lived through the season last year, like anything that was particularly very negative about RBR didn't really make it into the program. There, you know, there, there was nothing about like Max after Brazil, the whole... Monaco crash gate kind of thing and you know and and even like the whole overspend thing I mean even Horner was kind of like meh it was just for catering it's no big deal and and that's really the extent of it right my next my next free practice take and then I'll kick it over to you Seth what is it with team principals standing over their drivers while they're trying to eat, squeezing their shoulder. We see it consistently over the years with Christian Horner. Rolls up to Sergio, who clearly is uninterested in talking to him, and puts his hand on his shoulder and squeezes it. And then a couple episodes later, we've got Franz Toss doing the exact same thing to Yuki in the exact same position. I don't know if that is a leadership style or something that's taught throughout the Red Bull enterprise, but I thought it was pretty interesting, and I couldn't help but think it's designed to be I don't know if it's a power play or if it's designed as a mechanism to to demonstrate leadership or engagement. I don't know. I thought I just thought it was a little bit weird because if I'm sitting trying to eat, I'm sitting with my race engineer or my performance coach, like don't really need I don't really need my team principal saddling up and injecting themselves into the conversation while squeezing my my shoulder. I thought that was a little bit funny. Seth, over to you. <laughs> well, it's also funny it's like when you start to think of the paddock as like, oh, this is also just like a workplace. Yes, like yes. The, you're it would just be creepy and weird if your boss was just coming over and just sort of like putting hands on you all the time while you're eating, <laughs> you know? So like, I don't know. I, I, uh, I think it's a great observation. Uh, my next take is I loved hearing from Gunther Steiner's wife. Uh, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong. Gertrude, uh, Gertrude, Gertrude uh, Steiner. Like, and I really wish the show would go to family members more often because, you know, um, all of us have partners. Our partners know us well. They know our struggles in an intimate, unique way. I think that's so interesting to get that bit of insight. I wish they used more of her. And, you know, it's like in, in season one, we got like Danny Ricardo's mom a lot. I thought that was like so enriching to the experience of understanding like the danger that these drivers experience. Because everyone in that paddock is like, they they ignore a certain amount of like the danger and the peril and the stakes of what they're doing. Um, or they have to like kind of repress it all in a certain way just to like function at a high level. And I think it's really interesting to like see, you know, um, like we got um, uh, Mick Schumacher's mom in there 
too, and like was so sweet. Um, and Kevin Magnuson's wife, I would have loved to like hear from them more too. I don't know how comfortable they are with it, but I just wish the show would go in that direction more often because I think it makes it more special. I would just like to know what Gertrude actually thinks about uh, you know Gunther and what he's sort of become, I'd say, infamous for, and some of the, uh, you know, his you know language that would make a sailor blush at times. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, there was I, I thought it was great, like uh, like right off the very beginning. I'm not going to like say the exact thing, but Gunther said, well, something about what the rest of the paddock could do to him, or what he was going to do to the rest of the paddock, and kind of everyone's like. <gasps> It's kind of like one of those sort of like, oh my God, kind of shocked moments. And he just doesn't even realize he's saying such, uh, you know, very naughty things that he walked away and then his PR guy kind of said something and uh, he's like, oh, what did I say? Did, did I say something? Did I say something <laughs> bad? And he's like, oh, was it that one? It's like, and he's like the way he's, he's just like, that's not really that much of a big deal. It's kind of like the tone of his voice. So I'd always kind of like to love to hear her perspective on it because she seems to me and, and, and the few bits and pieces we've seen her in episodes over the years she seems to be very much the the opposite of uh, of uh, of Gunther you know very much like the, uh, the the rock that he needs to bring him back down to earth i i you know that's just my take but i think that uh, that's probably what her role is shifting from one formula 1 personality and gunther to another the chairman lawrence stroll continues to scare the living snot out of me. Absolutely. And he, he didn't yeah. get, so spoiler yeah. spoiler alert, he didn't get a ton of attention and camera time, but he is one hell of an imposing figure. And I think one of my biggest takeaways, and you know, at the end of 21, when there was all those rumors about the fact that Otmar was going to go to Alpine and then it eventually happened and he was replaced by Mike Crack and all those different things were happening. I thought it was remarkable that Otmar acknowledged on the show that his departure from Aston Martin was due at least in part to the fact that his job at Aston Martin was no longer quote unquote fun under Lawrence Stroll. Like, I, I'm sorry, Otmar, but Lawrence is coming in and spending hundreds of millions of dollars on that team. I don't know that your your job is supposed to be fun and maybe there should be some pressure and expectations. But yeah, to summarize, Lawrence scares the living heck out of me for sure. <laughs> Yeah, when was it? Was it the beginning of season four, or season three? Whenever it was that that Lawrence kind of walked into the the boardroom for the very yes, first time, that's the and scene. literally, like, I mean, that like the way I wouldn't say he glared, but he's got a a very penetrating stare, like gaze. And here I was lying around on my couch in my PJs or wherever it was. I watched that episode. I'm like, my goodness, he is a very imposing man who, you know, obviously is used to doing the, the things the way that. He he likes and wants to get to get things done. So yeah, great observation, Mark. Seth, over to you, buddy. Oh, yeah, sorry. Just, well, no, I was going to say on that one, they had a flashback to that, I think, you know, and that's the, that was that meeting where he's sitting there with a sort of like nose up in the air and he's like, yeah. you, you've got 15 minutes, go, you know, like. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, I thought this season did such a good job. They did it in two spots. I think they did it Monaco and Suzuka, definitely Suzuka, of showing the feeling of driving in the wet. And mm. how and how blinding it is, and the feeling of getting all that of, of the spray, um, just the experience of cutting it together and going from shot to shot to shot to shot to shot, and not giving you another perspective other than you know um, the onboard or the helmet cam was really disorienting, and I thought communicated the emotion of what that must be like for them in a really powerful way. The only tweak I would have is I the the one um, camera thing just to be TV technical for a moment. 
that always kind of bugs me is I really like the helmet cam. Having access to that, I think, is great. And they always reference this in the broadcast that, like, the human brain naturally stabilizes that shot for you. But there is the technology that exists to, in post, stabilize that shot. And it's so unwatchable, I think, during the actual race broadcast that I was dying for them to just stabilize it in post because it would look so cool and you would really actually get to see what the drivers are experiencing. I mean, it might be a little glitchy. You'd lose some frames here, but in there, but um, I, they box to box has the ability to do that. And they have the advantage of time to be able to do it in a way that the race broadcast can't. I, I just wish they would do that one of these days. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, guys, that when they first debuted the the helmet cam at the beginning of last year, I wasn't a big fan of it, but it really grew on me over like over the course of the season. But then when I saw like when, when I went back and watched those episodes where those, uh, you know, those different shots of uh, Suzuka, for example, showed up just in how bad the spray were or was, pardon me, it was just absolutely uh, fantastic. And it was just, it's just absolutely frightening. And it just kind of like brings back in, into stark reality how dangerous uh, this job is for for these guys every time they get into the car but the other thing too was just that I thought they did uh, a nice job because you got those great in-car shots from the helmet cam and then they also went back to show some of the like the the the, the shots as the cars went around the circuit and and I remember watching the race at the time it was just like how bad the spray was you'd have Max going down the pit straight and there was just like this plume of water and then somebody would pull out one side or the other is like oh my god there was a car actually that close behind him and we could didn't even see him on TV like that. It was it was it was amazing. But yeah, Helmet Cam, very cool. I very much agree with both of you. And one of the things that we've been tossing around, kind of a sneak preview or a tease for people listening at home, is we're we're talking about doing a breakdown or a podcast on the 2013 Ron Howard film Rush. And one of the things mm. that that movie did so well was capture the tsunami in Japan towards the end of the film. And as we were seeing some of these scenes, like Monaco, etc., in my mind, I kept recalling that the cinematic feel of of that film. So something I'm Definitely looking forward to talking about in the future, but I agree with both of you that they did a fantastic job. And Seth, absolutely you're right that in real time during a live broadcast, you don't have the ability to stabilize that that helmet cam footage, but there's no excuse for the fact that they didn't do it in post because it would have en- created a, an almost surreal perspective on racing that none of us would have seen before. Seth, that said, I'm going to kick it over to you because I think you have some thoughts about how Nick DeVries' story was treated during this series. Yeah, this is super quick, and then I'll kick it over to you. I was really bummed that we didn't really get the Nick DeVries story. We didn't really get the Albon uh, getting, you know, uh, uh, needing surgery, going to the hospital, and DeVries coming in. Um, but I, th- I think it's important to point out a thing that comes up in TV all the time, which is like fans will very often of a TV show have a very obvious criticism like I do of this. And more often than not, it's not that the creators of the show or the producers of the show don't know that exact same thing. It's the problem is usually time or money or both. And Mm. I, I have to believe that in this case, they just didn't have the footage. I don't know if they shot Monza. They, they don't shoot at every single race. Um, I will get into this later, but I definitely don't think they were at Brazil. And uh, I don't think they were at Monza. And even if they were at Monza, they would have had to – well, I don't know. If they were at Monza, I think they would have known pretty quickly like, oh, something potentially very cool is happening here. We should 
send one of these crews over to talk to this kid uh, or not a kid really. Um, but, uh, yeah, just a bummer that, that we didn't get a, a, a deeper look at it, um, because it's such a great underdog story and the, the, the edit to use that term that DeVries gets in this season, I would say he comes off pretty, uh, crummy, <laughs> pretty, pretty brusque, pretty competitive. Um, I'm excited to see him in, in real life. Um, but, uh, just wish they had 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 that footage because that I thought I thought his treatment in this season was a little abrupt. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Over to you, Hammy. <laughs> Great. I I just assumed because of his shared Dutch DNA that Mr. Daly was going to have some comments on Nick, but I'm happy to take the next one. And I'm actually going to read here uh, a DM that I, I was kind of speaking to, or a DM, one of our listeners that I was speaking to via Twitter DM. So Mr. Firebrand, he writes, there is so much greatness to learn, discover, and enjoy about the sport. It's a technological competitive marble, the problem-solving, resource-management, in a logistical endeavor, all the teams have to tackle, et cetera. So he makes some really great points. And my point here is the show continues to be very light on the technical side of F1. And there could be some very specific reasons for it. It might just not make for really compelling television. It might not be super engaging, but I agree with Firebrand because I think there's so much more story that can be unpacked. We never go back to the factory. We never see what's happening there. We never see the designer and the engineers modeling something. We never learn about a problem that, like we learned about porpoising. Like we talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the season, but there was never an explanation for that fact that it was solved and what they did to solve it, that so much of what these teams encounter are technical challenges, but we continue to avoid getting into that side of the story. And again, I totally get why. I just think it would be a more complete narrative if from time to time we dived in and saw some of the, um, I, I guess you could say, behind the scenes characters that help to bring these cars to life and get them on the grid. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. That 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 makes a lot of sense to me as well. But you know, having said that, like I'm I'm not too terribly disappointed that that sort of more technical side of Formula One doesn't make it into Drive to Survive because for me it's it, it's all about the entertainment and it's it's sort of crafting that that larger narrative and and tying and interweaving these different episodes together with the ultimate aim to kind of go through the entire season and then where you know well I guess you know 21 was different 
different because everything came to a head at Abu Dhabi and and this past year it was over literally by Easter so you know so it was a bit different but you know like I understand that that that, that they are trying to build like it's a bit of a slow burn at times trying to build up to sort of the climax of, of the season and I'm fine with that like if I really want the nitty gritty on the technical side of Formula One there's so many different resources so many different places I can go to to to, to get that so for me I kind of like how they kind of package up the entire world championship into to 10 episodes or whatever it is and kind of make it make it fun and 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 make it enjoyable but you know maybe that's just me yeah i uh you know hamilton i definitely agree that it would be really great if they had really dove deep into all the tech (laughs) you know I don't know, man. I think that it's like, I think I think you nailed it. It's like, I, I just don't see how that's compelling TV, unless it is like what you were saying, where it's like, I would love to know about the people who work at the factory. And how cool would it be if you are contrasting what the, what the personal stakes are for someone like Lewis Hamilton, and also the guy who's making probably a good middle-class living working in the factory, but also has incredibly high personal stakes in trying to solve an engineering problem um, and feels in, like as a part of this organization. That to me is super interesting, but just getting all of it through the teams and stuff, I think we got a little bit of that in the Mercedes episode, and I just don't think it's that compelling, unfortunately. Um, the um, I'll, I'll, I'll hit my next take really quickly here because I'm starting to sort of ramp up my uh, – um, uh, you know, turning the engine mode up a little bit, you know, starting, starting to push the tires. Um, there Party was modes? a part, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, um, so there was a Sam Cooper article in Planet F1 about the, um, Esteban Ocon had a quote, basically shout said, out he, Sam he, Cooper, sh- shout out Sam Cooper. Um, Ocon was upset that in the episode about, uh, Alpine that at the end of the French Grand Prix, they took a line from his onboard from another race where he finished P8 in France, but they took a line from another race where he said, this feels like a win today. Um, in reality, I went back and watched the onboard. He basically just keeps going. Yep. Copy that. Got it. Okay. Yep. Bring it in. Yep. Like he's very, he's clearly like, he's not happy, but he's not, you know, furious or anything. And I think this is like super important to point out because I think like this does encapsulate the divide between everyone in the F1 media, all the F1 uh, people in the paddock with box to box Netflix and the fans of the show. And I, and I think a lot of our conflict tonight as we get into deeper (laughs) takes is going to be about this issue where um, that distinction is very meaningful. If you're a midfield driver to like settle for eighth versus fourth or fifth. But I don't think it's actually a meaningful distinction for anyone watching the show. And narratively, you just need something to wrap up that storyline. And so it's just something that gives it some sense of closure. So there's an end to a narrative arc. Um, And then they cut to Alonso and then they cut back to him and they included the regular audio that was really there. So it wasn't total fabrication. um, But I just thought it was interesting that you keep hearing drivers saying talking about feeling kind of burned it's that kind of stuff and i just want to say again like i just don't think that's actually a distinction that's meaningful to the audience i have to ask you a question my friend so one of the things that i've discovered in recent years is 
an artist, like a music artist now, will release an album on a streaming platform like Spotify and Apple. And sometimes a week, two weeks, three weeks later, they start editing the tracks in real time. And when Drake released Certified Loverboy in September of 2021, he actually went back and was continuing to edit the tracks weeks later. And I've heard, although I have no definitive proof, but I've heard that Netflix does the same thing with some of their TV shows, is that in cases like this, there's such a rush to get it done. And I think we we learned this with uh, The Last Dance, that they were still editing episodes of Last Dance the day the show was, the day the episode was to debut. But I've heard that they've started making edits based on feedback and observations that people are making. So it'll be curious to see if they go back and make an edit like that, because I didn't pick up on that until you'd mentioned that. And then I thought that was, that is some serious creative license. If you are lifting a soundbite from one event, one moment, one set of context and moving it to another, like that's pretty, pretty bold. And I'm glad they were called out for that. I have one really quick one. And then Seth, I'll give it to you to wrap up this section before we move on to qualifying in a quick break. Very satisfied with the minimal coverage of Williams. Bird Pinkerton, your heart is probably breaking. I just feel they need to earn the right to be on this platform and they're not doing it on the track and their drivers didn't give us enough juiciness this year to earn the right to be here. Would love to have learned a little bit more about Yas Capito's departure and some of the underlying reasons for that. We didn't get it. Not a big deal. Seth, you get the last word before we cut to a break. It's super quick. I just want to say I love Jenny Gao. I love her so much. And it was I was so happy when she finally popped up in episode five. And uh, just wish her all the best and hope that she has a, a, a great quick recovery. So we get her back soon. Yeah, on behalf of myself and Daly, I think we totally agree. I've acknowledged many times on this podcast that the best Formula One podcast on the internet is the Checkered Flag podcast, in no small part because of the way that she's able to wrangle that group of hosts. On that note, let's take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills, and we'll be back in a jiffy. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me today, Mr. Mark Daly, Mr. Seth Whiteberg. We are going through our hottest, our coldest, our most lukewarm takes of Drive to Survive <laughs> Season 5. We've just gone through free practice. We're kicking it up a notch now. We're going into our qualifying takes, and I'm going to read here from Seth's outline, Okay, a pressure is officially on, and these takes are out there pushing for performance. They don't have to stand up to 50 or 60 laps. Just go out and put in one great go. Seth, you are first, and then daily. Seth, fire away. Okay, this is definitely a, a Q1 of a take, but Otmar Safnauer was edited to be a John C. Riley character on this season, and... um. He was bumbling. He was sort of goofy and sweet. He, you know, he didn't instill in me a ton of confidence in handling that team, in spite of the fact that you're constantly hearing about his experience and how long he's been involved in the sport. But I would say that, like, my my bigger disappointment is that everything covered about Alpine perfectly sets you up to show more clearly why did everyone want to jump off that ship? Um, like, why was why did Alonso leave? I kind of don't believe it was just the money. I have to believe there was more going on there. Otherwise, you negotiate a little. Uh, and I have to believe that um, there's something going on with Piastri beyond, you know, just the sort of, sort of like better offer from Zach Brown. So um, in general, 
and I'll get to this more later, I don't think Drive to Survive should be like a an addendum to the season for F1 fans. I think it's its own thing, but it, I think it's a justifiable question within the context of everything they showed you about Silly Season this year that they that they could have gone a little harder in trying to make it clear what is the problem at Alpine that these guys are trying to get away from. So Seth, I got to jump here and ask you now as a, you know, to put your producer hat on, which I assume is the hat that you're wearing. So someone comes to you. So Stefano Domenicali comes to you and says, Seth, we want to do an F1 rebrand or reboot of Step Brothers. We're going to cast <laughs> Otmar as John C. Riley. Who do you get to play Will Ferrell in that F1 remake of Step Brothers? Oh my gosh, what a great question. <laughs> Who do you get... Um, I think, I actually think you could get, um, what would Toto be fun? If when Toto like lets go a little bit and is a little more winking, he's pretty fun. You want someone who's like a little more physically domineering yes. <laughs> over, yes. over the other one. So maybe Toto, but he, you know, may, probably, it's probably Gunter. I mean, let's be honest, it's probably Gunter. But the, the, the thing is with like, uh, with, with Toto, right? You can tell that, that the, the Toto that we see on Drive to Survive or just in general, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? That That's business Toto, that there's a completely different Toto that, that never makes it out into public. That's the Toto I want to get to know. So that, that's a good call. I like that. Daily, you've got a really great take, but before you get there, yep. I'm actually going to move up one of mine because it intertwines with Seth's a little bit. But in episode five, I really felt like we only got a surface level retelling of the mid-season driver contract debauchery. Like I, I learned nothing new. And at first I felt a little bit embarrassed for Otmar that he helped to engineer that situation where two of his drivers exited under his watch in a short amount of time. And then I, I began to get a sense that maybe this guy shouldn't have a job at all, that you and I have been such huge advocates of Otmar for so long. But that comment at the beginning of the show where he's like, yeah, I didn't want to work for Lawrence. And I'm paraphrasing. I didn't want to work for Lawrence because I wasn't having fun anymore. And then he goes to Alpine and he bumbles his way through the driver silly season and then falls back ass backwards into Gasly. I just, I thought it was that, I just didn't think it was a good look for him, but I really was hoping to learn more about the Piastri situation. We learned nothing more. We learned very little about, about uh, the Fernando Alonso signing. We knew he met with Lawrence that weekend. We knew the deal was more term and more money. We didn't learn anything there. And then we didn't really learn anything about how they were able to manufacture that Gasly switch, other than the fact that Gasly clearly wanted to go to, to a works team where he thought he might be able to contend. But I thought it was surface level. They couldn't ignore it because it was one of the, and we've talked about this before, that last year, one of the highest rated episodes that we did was that summer episode where we got into the driver silly season. I just, I feel like mm -hmm. they did a disservice to that subject. And maybe it's because the actors and the stakeholders involved didn't want to give up anything. And there was some contractual pieces there, but I was hoping for more from that episode. Yeah, totally, Hammy. I agree with you. Like that, that one left, um, you know, left me wanting a lot more. Like it, my my comment kind of uh, ties back into what uh, Seth was saying that Otmar kind of kind of looked like this John C. Riley character because, in general, I mean, he he did look like a bit of like a bumbling amateur like that. And then yes, that yes. episode, and and then but then like on the flip side, Zach kind of looked like the like like the the hero, the McLaren hero that goes and poaches this hot young prospect. 
from you know from his rival and kind of um, leaves him hanging. But it was all you know that that whole kind of story kind of culminated in that uh, that moment with that uh, the the announcement that that Alpine made that he was going to or Piastri was going to drive for him, and then he released that tweet saying that 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 this is basically misinformation or disinformation, whatever you want to call it, and that he is not going to be driving for for Alpine next year. I was just like, okay, like like let's let's dive into this like but it kind of like moved on i just felt like that that was a little bit superficial i really felt we, like there we should have dived in i wanted to know more i was just like give me more give me more and it just like daily it just like, like moved off so quickly last summer we learned that there was a point where where oscar is in the factory and endstone in the simulator and and otmar walked down and congratulated him on being the new driver and left and Oscar didn't say anything, but later basically went home and sent the tweet. Like there's so much more that we, we could have like, like, like both of you said, there's so much more that could have been, uh, could have been unpacked there daily. Your next point is fantastic. And I'm eager to hear Seth's perspective on this and daily eager to learn why you feel this way. Okay, I, I assume this is like my, my take on why they have the number of episodes that they have. Yes. Because, you know, if you think this is great, then I'm definitely not going to live up to my sort of prediction that I'm sort of a disappointing Danny Ricardo McLaren era type of qualifier that, you know, can't make it out of Q1. Anyways, having said that, I just want to know, is there somewhere in the contract that they have with the F1 that there has to be 10 episodes in, in every season? Because I, I went back and checked after I was thinking about it, after I watched the, you know, I, I watched the, the last episode yesterday and I went back every season all previous four drops were all 10 seasons or sorry 10 episodes as well and I just can't help but think that sometimes it's just like do you really need to stretch it out to like tool you know 10 episodes because I felt just in general like generally I enjoyed the season but I felt like this year there was more 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 filler than usual right than in previous years like did we really need to see Pierre Gasly and Yuki Sonoda driving around Tokyo and Yuki's digestive gastric issues and you know Pierre rolling down the windows for some fresh air like I just like this doesn't really totally agree this is like me driving around getting groceries with my kids like this is like Okay, it's kind of like a, you know a, a bit of a lighthearted moment, but I just I, I did see how like things like incidents like that really kind of like added anything of value to the season or you know this season five whatsoever. You know, Seth, I'd love to hear your take on on those sorts of uh, moments we saw throughout the entire season. I mean, just to speak to the like, do they have to make ten? Like all that stuff is up for negotiation, but it is negotiated, and then once the deals are signed, you're pretty much locked into that. I mean, like there's certainly a world where if the producers were like, we just don't have the goods to like make you an, a 10th episode, we're going to deliver nine. They they could potentially renegotiate that with Netflix, I think. But that gets very sticky because Netflix wants that consistency. Uh, and also that would mean giving back money because the all those producers are and, and the production company, they're making money based off of like an episode, an episodic fee. Um, all the people who are working on the show would have to give back money probably. So I, I think it gets very sticky to do that. Um, that it's really no one is incentivized to do that. Everyone is incentivized to like stretch out an episode out of something um, much more so. Um, all right. So my next take here, I feel like this is, this is where we, we're kind of jumping right to Q3 because I feel like the, <laughs> we're going to get some, <laughs> we, we all, we all disagree quite a bit on this. Um, I think episode seven, hot seat, uh, which was the Checo episode, 
is a top five Drive to Survive episode of all time. And I think it's in part because what it does perfectly is uh, creates a super compelling half hour-ish of television for people that do not watch Formula One and also leaves a lot of negative space there for those of us who do to fill in the blanks. So what I mean by that is like, um, we know that there was a scandal with Checo um, getting photographed with another woman that weekend. Uh, now, they don't talk about that. I, I'm fine with that, actually, because I think that's just like, I don't know, it's, it feels kind of low to me to hit. It's certainly very reality TV to hit, but like, feels like a low blow for a thing that is like, it was one picture and like, it just, it gets into a weird pissing contest with Verstappen's mom. And like, I don't know, I just didn't, I, I felt a little icky about the thinking it was coming. And the reason I thought it was coming is because they give you this very heavy handed, like he loves his family. He's got a new baby. That to me was for us. That to me was very much for like, Plus the you pictures know. or the videos of him dancing with his wife at the wedding, right? You know, like yes. I, I totally agree with you. Like, like where it kind of gets into that reality TV. Like, I'm not really, I, I, I don't really feel like it needs to go there. Like, I, I feel that's kind of like really kind of lowbrow kind of stuff. But like the juicy F1 stuff, like the whole, like they show him crashing at Monaco. I'm like, great. Now fast forward to Brazil and and Max making those comments of like, well, he knows what he did, kind of thing, and that that whole conversation, but it kind of got brushed over to like, oh, look at what, what a great guy Checo is and he's such a great teammate and stuff. But but he you know, also had this line. Yeah. He, he, he had this line in the episode that I thought was like very powerful. He said, family is what Formula One takes away from you. Uh, like that's, uh, you know, I don't know. That's kind of like a, that's a very powerful statement about like following your craft and, you know, competing at the highest levels and, and obviously speaks to the drama that went on there. I totally agree that later in the season, it was weird to not get the Max Checo conflict. It feels that felt so perfect for the show. Uh, and yes, I thought they were setting it up. But again, just through the lens of like, I'm sitting down and I'm watching this one chunk of television. When they like zoomed in on Monaco. I literally wrote in my notes, I was like, please let us just stay here. Just make the whole episode about Monaco. Let's live in this, this cool city. This, it's the best. It's, it's the best Formula One city, right? Um, I just wanted to stay there the whole time. I think it's like a narrative arc. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and again, I know you guys have qualms with it, which I'm about to hear, but I think for fans of the show and as a piece of television, uh, it was Fantastic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, no, I, I agree with yeah, I, I I agree with that part, but I I just feel that you know going back to what I mentioned briefly earlier on that you know 
Red Bull dominated last year. They they won both championships. They had a fantastic package. Their drivers, you know, basically hit home run after home run all season long. But you know, there there is a bit of a darker side to that, right? There there is the the whole overspend thing. There's so I I just feel like that if you're gonna show someone some love like they did, like I feel like they kind of glossed over or like. To me, it wasn't like it was glossed over. It was like to me, it was like patently ignored. Like the in, in large part is just like the whole cost cap overspend. Like Christian was like it was four hundred thousand dollars in catering costs. It's like meh, and and like Zach Brown was like, well, you know, like we're not talking about pickles on a sandwich here. You know, you know that clearly has like a performance advantage. It's just like okay, let's take it a little bit further. Then it's like it's on to the next thing. So. I just feel that, you know, like, like I was saying, I can leave all, I, I don't need like the, um, like the, the entire deep dive into porpoising in, into drive to survive to, to me that real, you know, technical nitty gritty. I, I don't really need it, you know, other than maybe like a, a little bit of it, but I, I just feel that to get the whole story, it kind of had to showcase the good and the bad. And I just felt myself, you know, shaking my fist and screaming at my iPhone a couple of times. I was like, no, please, you got to do this. You got to do this. And then kind of like pulling on my air, like, you guys, you should have, you, you needed to tell the story more. And I feel that they, they really didn't do a proper job when it, when it came to the whole Red Bull story. I'm not, I'm not going to pivot on my position here. And, and I, you know, Seth, you and I were excited to be able to talk about this because we have diverging opinions. And you talk about this as being a top five Drive to Survive episode of all time for the technical reasons and for uh, the artistic reasons that you just explained. But to me, this was a mind-numbingly, unacceptably bad episode. It was engineered reality television and it was designed and I'm not trying to diss Checo because I also agree that there was no the there was no there was no concrete evidence to suggest you're right like in terms of that entire um tabloid cheating scandal it was a photo um it didn't lead to any particular outcome in his relationship in his life in the world there was obviously that uncomfortable moment where Max's mom was tweeting about it. But overall, this episode was a love story to Checo. And it was engineered as such that Checo is under the gun. He's facing the pressure. We get constant footage of Horner questioning his ability to be a race driver and how ruthless Horner is and how ruthless Red Bull is. And then it builds and builds and builds to this moment in Monaco where the conditions are clearly fierce and against the drivers. And despite crashing, despite crashing and qualifying and starting on the second row, he manages to win the Grand Prix pre dives in the pool and gets a contract. It's a love story to Checo. To me, it was totally engineered because I don't recall. And I know daily from time to time, we would talk about the fact that, hey, in the first part of the season, he certainly wasn't performing as well as his teammate was. But I don't think there was any point in the first three months of 2022 where you and I were here with Pitchfork saying his jobs, his jobs on the line, because if it meaningfully was, I don't think a single win in Monaco was going to be enough to change helmet Marco and Christian Horner's mind but the combination of the Horner the the Horner 
verbiage and and conversation and the way that they framed the story was that he was seriously under the gun and that he was going to lose his job if he didn't win in Monaco and he did win in Monaco and he got a contract extension and everything's great and his wife is fantastic while ignoring some of these outlying issues and then on top of it as we discovered later in the season that there was some pretty fierce allegations that that crash was intentional and we don't know that because nobody's formally complained which means the FIA haven't actually investigated it, but it was directly linked to that moment on the track in Brazil where where Max wouldn't give back the position, and we never discussed that moment either. But I thought the episode was unacceptably bad. I thought it was nauseating. I like Checo. I just I don't know what warranted an entire episode that was in essence a, a love story uh, for Checo on the grid. I don't I don't understand what the need. And Mark, you made that point about like, did we need ten episodes? Like to me, there was one other episode which we'll speak to in a. Couple couple of minutes that I didn't think was necessary. I don't know that this one was necessary, or it could have been a smaller storyline in a bigger episode. So I wasn't loving it, was not loving, infuriating, in fact. You got to let Seth respond to that. I mean, after you got up at your soapbox for like the last five minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll infuriate you even more. Even the contract thing was fudged. Like we know from that hot mic moment that he actually probably signed the deal before the race. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, but again, like, I don't know. Um, I don't think the producers are going into these seasons with the obligation of trying to create a season recap for you. That's just not what the show is. The show is, here's a bunch of source material. Here's a bunch of compelling characters. Make the best television you can about the highest stakes personal dramas going on with them. To me, it reminded me a lot of one of my other favorite episodes, which is, I believe it's season three, which is the Valtteri Bottas episode. Um, that was, you know, so much about him being in Lewis's shadow. Um, so we don't have to dwell on the conflict anymore. I think it's great that we have some healthy disagreement. I enjoyed the heck out of it. And I really want to go to Monaco sometime. Um, to, to, to get to my, my next qualifying take, which you sort of referenced, I think we have a disagreement about another episode, which is I actually really loved the Alpha Tower episode. And here's why. Because every <laughs> – you're already shaking your head. <laughs> Just from like a TV construction standpoint – I don't think there's been another episode of Drive to Survive, and I'm sure someone's going to prove me wrong, but where the episode starts with someone deciding to leave, and the whole episode is kind of them in this like lame duck session of being on a team but not being on a team. I actually thought that was fascinating because you you you, stud- you suddenly get Pierre – not just like palling around with Yuki, but there's this like dynamic now of like, he's decided to leave. Um, And I think sometimes, you know, um, this beautiful thing happens with all these drivers when English is their second language, where they're just like a little more plain spoken, but there's this like moment where they're like on stage together at at, at one of the events, you know, and Yuki's like, well, he decided to leave. And he's like, yeah, I did. (laughs) So bye, you know, but you also get that moment on when they're like traveling somewhere where Pierre just like starts giving Yuki this like long, pep talk essentially. And Yuki's like cringing and like super uncomfortable the whole time. I think that like, for me, that was interesting because I think it's very hard at this point to come up with a new kind of episode. And I think that was one. But to me, it was just like all character, character, character. My other takeaway from it was like, Yuki Sonoda is not a professional, like professional. (laughs) Not even close. He might be a professional driver, but I, I like really, uh, if I was his team, I would be like, this guy needs 
like to it's in a like I don't know I'm not gonna pass judgment on it but I'm gonna pass judgment on it you shouldn't you should you have to be a professional I think at a certain point like be emotional but like be a professional um and I think the big thing for me also Hamilton is like you need a change of pace like you can't do 10 episodes in a row that are all one tone and one note and I think you need an episode like this that is like total downshift very light very like it's the rom-com episode basically in a lot of ways. Um, and I, and I feel like I learned a ton about both these guys, but, but I also think that this episode in a lot of ways was really more about 2023 than 2022. It was really setting up. I thought a lot of stuff that, that I'm, I'm so excited to find out about. I'll be totally honest. I was binging these. I'd actually forgotten like, oh yeah, the, we, we have to resolve the DeVries stuff. And that came up in the second half of this. So I was like, Oh, this this episode is perfectly putting all the pieces on the chessboard for what is the dynamic going to be like for all three of these guys in 23. Loved it. Fire away. Yeah. So when Daly made that comment a couple minutes ago about, did we really need 10 episodes this season? This, to me, was the episode that I would have cut. And I get it contractually Net shit or net shit. <laughs> Netflix. Netflix needs the viewership. They they need the clicks. They need the eyeballs. Ten episodes provides a ton of of rewatchable value for them. But to me, I just I didn't learn anything. Um, we we had an episode about Gasly or Gasly about Yuki previously. We didn't learn anything new about him. Is he unprofessional? Yes, we knew that because of Netflix. Is he lazy? Yes, we knew that because of Netflix. In this episode, he claims to have learned a lot from Gasly, but then admits that his results are still incredibly inconsistent. And then when we see footage of footage of footage of him on the track, he's as unprofessional as he's ever been. I just I didn't know that this episode was necessary. Necessary. It was really a combination of two things. It was a Yuki episode, and then it was a story about the friendship between Yuki and Gasly. And I felt that as well was a little bit manufactured that Yuki, I look up to Gasly, I've learned a lot from him. And Gasly, I've taken Yuki under my wing and I defend him. I'm like, well, the results don't really show this. And Yuki clearly hasn't evolved as a person, and the team's being broken up anyways. And Yuki might not have a job after 2023 I just I thought it was a weird place to focus on that obviously you want to be able to underline and maybe illustrate some of the reasons why Gasly chose to leave that organization but to spend so much time continuing to build on the Yuki story when he could be out of the sport after next year was a little bit odd and it seemed to build and build and build and you're right like this wasn't this wasn't a super tense episode there wasn't a lot of suspense it didn't ask a lot of the viewer except to sit back and watch the relationship between the two of them unfold but ultimately it builds towards something and that that something is just 30 seconds of DeVries at the end like the two seconds of recycled footage from Monza and then him sitting down and then DeVries didn't really come across as a super nice likable person anyways like I'm not sure who benefited from this episode that Yuki doesn't look better than he currently does like unprofessional immature lazy and and ghastly again i didn't learn anything new about ghastly and he didn't have a particularly successful year but he got the opportunity to go to the all french works team and alpine i again the episode was fine but i could have skipped it like if uh, if i was in a time crunch um and somebody said skip this episode i don't think i would have missed anything 
You know, it's interesting because I, I kind of feel that we we had that uh, episode last year with the Yuki, which you know kind of stood out because it was it was an interesting look at a, a Formula One driver, and he was so different from all the other ones that we 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 become used to and seen over the years, right? Just for all the reasons that Mark has so nicely laid out over the past couple of um, reasons. Why does uh, Yuki stand out? Because he's lazy, he's unprofessional, all those things compared to you know like the flip side, like your your Lewis Hamiltons, your Max Verstappens, and and these guys that are just like hyper focused on their their job as a Formula One driver but you know I, I just couldn't help they were trying to maybe try I don't know if this is a bit of an experiment on the behalf of the producers part with Yuki that uh, that we've seen over the years I mean there, there's no doubt some of the standouts over the previous couple of years are some of the bigger more flamboyant personalities like Gunther like Danny Ricardo and you know there's, there's been plenty of um, you know standout memorable moments for for both of those guys and I couldn't help Help but wonder are are they trying to go maybe in the same direction with the with Yuki Sonoda that we've seen with Danny Ricardo and and, and Gunther? Yeah, I think that's a great call, Daly. I, I, you need characters, you know. It's like again, like you're making television. You need characters, you need stakes, and you need conflict. And so that's what you're looking for more so than anything else. Um, I've got one more qualifying take. Um, and it's actually just about something that I think Drive to Survive does so incredibly well, especially as they've leaned into this non-linear storytelling. But are you guys familiar with the the Kurosawa fil- film Rashomon or the idea of a Rashomon? Um, or there was like the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book, Chronicle of a Death Foretold. You know, it's like basically the idea of like telling one story from multiple perspectives. And the idea is like, you or you tell about one event from multiple perspectives and you in so doing you end up with a much more three-dimensional kind of like profound understanding of like what any individual moment was and we got a little of it with monaco like we got monaco from schumacher as well as red bull like that was kind of cool because you see how it affects it but but the the one that was really i think special in this season was silverstone and also, I think it was like very convenient for the producers because this is speculation, but my guess is that they committed to a certain number of these episodes as being the episodes right around Silverstone or right after, because it was kind of right around the midpoint of the season, and they probably needed to start cutting stories and, and, and actually starting assemble episodes. And I think they really luck, lucked out in that regard. But I just thought it was so cool to like... you. To, to keep going back to Silverstone as like you get you get the the Mercedes and Hamilton angle on it when he when he gets the podium there you you obviously get the George Russell part of it um, with the crash you get the crash um, and then uh, I'm blanking on who the the uh, the third one was but the um, who, oh Joe so, going oh, oh, you Joe yeah and, the, um, the big crash with Alpha that and uh, and Ferrari and for and Signs yeah um, yeah and Signs you know, yes so. I don't know. I just, it's just like in hindsight now you can go back and just assemble all these sort of like points, you know, to get this really interesting sort of three-dimensional sense of just how consequential Silverstone was last year. And that's something that Drive to Survive can do that uh, the F1 media can never really do in the moment, which I thought was awesome. 
Yeah, another part that I really loved uh, about that one is it, I, I thought they did a, speci- you know, a particularly good job telling like uh, the, the Ferrari story in that one uh, episode early on in the season. And it kind of culminated right at the end where science wins. You get like this this great moment for, for his personal milestone of winning his first race. And then you get the exasperation and you get the, the, the disappointment and the frustration from Charles Leclerc. And now that now infamous finger-wagging moment from Mattia Bonotto and Charles Leclerc afterwards that you know somebody captured and you know like at a photograph and you get Matias sort of wagging his finger at Charles afterwards and you know the, the the rumors that they didn't speak after Silverstone and all that but I agree Seth I think that they do a great job telling the same story or the larger story from different angles and then kind of having them all converge over time I, I think they do they're they're particularly good at that it's uh, it's, it's very very clever so gents this is my final lap of Q3 before we take a break and jump into the Grand Prix takes. And it is this, get the celebrities off of the grid and get them out of the garages during a race. This is not a criticism and this is not an observation about Drive to Survive, except for the fact that they had to inject within the show that race where Tom Cruise was just hanging out in the Mercedes garage, standing right next to Total Wolf and the engineer as a part of the operation. This to me is incredibly it's embarrassing that in 2023, Formula One still feels that feels the need to fill the grid in the garages with celebrities to to buy credibility. Like this is like putting Chris Evans in the Yankees dugout next to the manager during a playoff game. It's totally unacceptable. It's unprofessional. It's a distraction. We've got to get rid of this. And I, I recall that episode, the Treehouse of Horror Simpsons episode, way back in the 90s, <laughs> when all of the big signage came to life and they started smashing the town and Lisa came to this realization that as with all advertising if you don't pay attention to it it goes away and I hope that all of us in Sky TV especially stops paying attention to the celebrities on the grid and in the garages so we can finally put that part of Formula One history to bed just like we did the grid girl so on that note oh Daly you've got a point I'm not yeah, when when it comes to like the broader like get the celebrities out of the pit lane kind of thing, I'm cool with that. But when it comes to Tom Cruise, I'm okay with Tom Cruise as long as it's Top Gun Tom Cruise and not giddy jumping on Oprah's couch Tom Cruise. But maybe that's uh, that's just me. There's many different and layers see of Tom Cruise that we are not going to get into on this show. On that note, let's take a quick break. Pay some of the proverbial bills. We'll be back in just a jiffy. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining me today, Mr. Mark Daly, Mr. Seth Whiteberg. We are jumping into Grand Prix takes. Boys, it is on. Come out racing with your biggest, hottest takes and leave them all out there. Seth, you've got a couple of zingers to start with, so I'm going to kick it over to you. All right, let's do it. On the whole, I really like this season, but... um, I thought they totally blew it with the Mercedes and Ferrari episodes. Um, I think that the, like, I just, honestly, the first three episodes, um, I was just, I I was like readying for the worst with this season. I just was not engaged at all. But I think that like, okay, so I said before, I think that they probably had to commit to these episodes early, which is why Mercedes builds to Silverstone. But it was so strange to me because like, Hamilton had also gotten a 
P3 the previous weekend, I think, in Canada. So it's like, you know, again, that's fine. Like that kind of fudging I'm totally fine with. You're going to obviously cover Mercedes and Lewis at Silverstone. Um, But I felt like as soon if Brazil didn't happen, I guess I'm fine with this episode. But when once Brazil happens, I you have to make the episode about the conflict between Russell coming in as the new guy, just grinding out high points finishes. Well, your seven-time world champion is forced to like take on upgrades, you know, or, or tweaks to the cars. They're trying to figure out the floor, and then Russell getting his first win. The 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 constant the constant storyline was not is. Honestly, is Hamilton going to leave the sport? They didn't even have the sound to like pair to that. It was really just like news clip, you know, internet screenshots. I was like, that feels low stakes to me. Honestly, the bigger like personal stakes thing was like, is he going to go his first season without winning a race? So again, I, I mentioned this before. I have to believe this is the case. I think they just didn't. I think they weren't at Brazil. I think they were probably like, Let's get to Abu Dhabi early. <laughs> Let's get set up. Let's get comfortable. You know, like, because I, I think I have that right. The Brazil is the second to last exactly. race of the season. And the championships were yeah. both decided. The championships were both decided. It was decided. all decided because it's just like, there's just no world where you would treat uh, George Russell's win and Kevin Magnuson's poll the way that they did on this season if they were actually there to film it. So, you know, it, it sucks. But I'm still going to put it on them for not making a more compelling episode of TV. The porpoising stuff, I mean, to your point about like the tech, wanting more technical stuff, Mark, like I thought the porpoising stuff here was really boring, to be honest. Like the Toto, you know, team principal conflict a little bit. Like I was really looking forward to that scene. And the whole thing kind of felt like, I don't know, a real, just kind of a waste of time. Everyone's just kind of like laughing at Toto, being like, look at this jag off playing for the camera. So I don't know. So I thought that was. A bust. And um, Daily, I don't know. I disagree about the Ferrari episode. To me, there was much more interesting, higher stakes aspects of the Ferrari story to capture in an episode. We've gotten so many Carlos Sainz episodes. This is at least the third Carlos Sainz episode. And I agree it's like a big deal that he won that race. And it's definitely a big deal that he won that race when Leclerc should have won, and there's the like the parable strategy information, like a hundred percent, I think that's interesting. But I want it from Charles's perspective. Like he's the one that I want it. He's the one that was in the fight. He's the one that's trying to like actually win the championship. He's the one who had this insane great battle at the beginning of the season with Verstappen. And and narratively, if you do want to speak to what the real narrative was throughout the season, it you know, there really was not much tension with science. It was Leclerc. And at the end, if you want, again, if you want to, if you want to really fold in the end of the season, there was the tension of, is Russell going to catch Leclerc? That is all so much more compelling to me um, than the way they dealt with it. I I wish they actually leaned really hard into the non-linearity and basically just gave us the whole Ferrari story and the whole Mercedes story for the whole season in a a single episode. I thought that would have been much more interesting. But this is also a chance to support out one other like Netflixy thing, which I think is is interesting. Is like in the original episode list that they released, this Mercedes episode I think was fourth, and I think the Schumacher episode was third. And I and and I will tell you that one thing that Netflix 
is extremely concerned about with every show, and I hear this a lot, is um, people finishing a show, literally just watching it all the way through. So if you were wondering, why do they keep doing a coming up on the next episode followed by a coming up on this season at the end of every single episode. That is because what Netflix wants more than anything in the world is for you to finish a show and they and they will get rid of shows that where, where the, that rate drops off. And not only do they want you to finish, they want you to finish kind of quick. So actually the best thing you could do for the future of Drive to Survive if you want the show to be around is like binge the show. That is like, uh, is great for it. So all that is to say, I bet you they didn't want to do the Mercedes episode later because Mercedes has a lot of fans and people will want to see a Lewis and Mercedes and Toto episode. But I actually think the best television would have been if they had cameras at Brazil, do it later and show that whole arc. Yeah, you know, just a couple of things to that, Seth. I don't actually disagree with your take on the Ferrari one. It's just I, I felt as well like that, like they they leaned on the wrong storyline. I just felt like within the broader sphere of the episode itself, I thought the the end, like that sort of climax moment of the finish at Silverstone, and then especially that that one moment that 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 epoch of uh, of uh, Benotto and uh, and uh, Charles in the pit lane and the finger shaking moment. I thought that was fascinating to see, but then. Um, there was something else I was going to say now that I've kind of forgotten what it was. Oh, I know what it was. It was that the, I can prove to you right now, or at least I'm going to try, hope I can convince that I can prove to you right now that uh, Box to Box wasn't in Brazil. And uh, Seth, you so you you brought it back and it was kind of like my eureka moment was the sprint race and how well K-Mag did. Because if they were there, they would have had a camera on, on, on Gunther the entire time. I mean, if they've had him talking about effing blank, blank, blanks the entire four previous seasons, they would have loved to get his uh, reaction on the best result that Hass has had in you know ever right so I, th- I think right there is pretty much uh, proof positive that uh, the, unfortunately they didn't have the uh, a camera there sorry go ahead jump no in. I, I can I ask you guys a quick question about Ferrari actually I feel I, I leave this season feeling very conflicted about Mattia Bonotto because there were definitely moments where he seemed very oblivious to what was really going on with his team. It's hard to know just if that's just an edit or not. Um, I think we all know he was fired. I, I don't, I, the, the resignations, you know, whatever, that's for show. But Res- Resignation. Resignation, yeah, in quotes. <laughs> I, I'm curious how you guys feel about him, the situation, the, the back sort of behind the scenes of Ferrari. Did you guys feel like you got any insight there that made you feel one way or another about how things actually shook out. Like, like I know, obviously, it's ten basically one-hour episodes of a, an entire season, and e- even though that that is a fairly small s- snapshot and a fair amount of footage, I feel like the vibe and the impression I get from Mattia Bonotto, and I know this is just watching it on TV, watching it on Netflix, you know, fair enough. But I feel like it, it reinforced my my opinion about him. I th- I think technically just a brilliant, very smart uh, person, you know that uh, that that he is like. The, 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 your sort of, you know, 
I guess your stereotypical hands-on engineering type of person that that maybe just lacks a little bit of those managerial, you know, people soft skills, right? And then just kind of like maybe thinking a little bit too much about the data and maybe not so much thinking, you know, like, you know, taking to the account that, you know, your driver's egos and personalities, that is a variable you have to take into account when you're running a Formula One team to, to some extent. And then also the, the, the fact that, that the blunders on the pit wall, it just, it kind Kind of came, kind of reinforced the impression that I have that first and foremost, Mattia Bonotto is a, a very, very good engineer that got this job as a team principal, which was maybe one step beyond, you know, his his capabilities. I don't know what no, Hammy man, thinks, I but I completely agree with everything that you're saying, and I think if if I learned anything from this series about Mattia Bonotto, it was. By contrast with the other team principals that we see, well, I guess Zach is a CEO, but we talk about Zach and we talk about Total and we talk about Gunther and we talk about Christian Horner. These guys seem tough as nails, fight it out, scrap it out. They'll fight for their people. They'll fight for their team. Matteo Bonato just... His his personality doesn't seem compatible with the requirements of the role of a team principal. And while I don't think I learned anything about what was happening behind the scenes that may have manifested itself in all the mistakes and the errors and the problems that Ferrari had as the championship progressed, I just I continue to I continue to lean into my opinion that just from a personality perspective, he just might not be the right person. And when I talk about personality, is he willing to have difficult conversations when they need to be had? Is he willing to make difficult decisions when they need to be met? Is he willing to fire somebody that's underperforming or made a mistake? And I think he was willing to take on too much of the criticism himself and, and wasn't willing to hold his people accountable. And I think I saw that through his personality. All right. Should I dive into my yeah, next yeah, one? Yeah, do it. Absolutely. Okay. So, uh, looking forward to the conflict on this one. But I think that episodes four through eight were the best Drive to Survive has maybe ever been. And I think all the other episodes were some of the worst episodes of Drive to Survive ever. So, I, I leave this season with kind of a mix. Uh, a, 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 a bad taste in my mouth, a little bit, or a, a, a mixed impression, I should say. I think this show is designed to perfectly cover the midfield, and it is terribly designed to cover the championship. Last season was such a perfect example of this, because it was just about as great a championship as you could possibly have narratively, and look how sort of like middling the TV that came out of it was. And I think, like, keep in mind, season one, which I think most people think of as as a whole the best season of Drive to Survivor, at least it's right up there, you didn't even have Ferrari. You didn't even have Mercedes. You had no coverage of Lewis Hamilton and the championship, um, other than just, like, in, in the background. And I think it's because they have built this format that wants to celebrate the personal stakes of of the characters here risking their lives. Um, and it's not meant to be a season recap. And when it starts to go in that direction, I think the show really falls apart. Um, and I think that, like I said before, I think the F1 media, you know, uh, 
with all due respect to Sam Cooper again, like who who was had a piece about like maybe it's time to end this thing. It's like it's really not supposed to be this kind of like supplement for fans. I think it's great when we get details that we know are supplemental and that enrich our understanding of the championship. But uh, now that I've been watching Formula One for a few years and like understand the sport better, I really try to watch Drive to Survive through much more of like a passive lens where I'm not scrutinizing it as as like an F1 fan trying to like better my like understanding of the championship. I think it's really much more like a a an opportunity to like get these characters to learn little details that maybe weren't there from a character perspective. And that can, I think, inform my understanding of what happens within the teams. It's great when when these things all kind of like uh, synchron- synchronize and you get like the perfect detail that is also informing the championship that is also like a high stakes character thing. But like, again, think about where like the show started. It started with like Danny Ricardo, you know, it started with, with all, with all the guys in the midfield and the, you know, like the stakes of the championship itself are actually not great TV stakes. Um, it's, it's the personal stakes I think that really matter. So like Mick, sitting on that like hillside in Geneva opening mm. up like it, to I me it was that. like one of the most powerful scenes in, in the show or like you know Atmar uh and and Zach Brown like in each other's trailers like that's where it feels like oh fly on the wall cool moment that's so interesting these guys like playing this chess match over this thing or like we, you know one of the moments i think that was like that that synchronicity i was talking about is like I don't, did we have confirmation that Lawrence Stroll and Alonso definitely had a meeting, you know, in, in the paddock? Um, but we got it here, you know, um, prior to him signing that contract. So I really, really enjoyed the middle of the season and I really felt them struggling in the other parts to shoehorn in the expectation that we are going to cover the championship in a certain way, um, and I think they've gone away from it. Like I think in earlier seasons, they they tried in some sometimes even more to like keep you abreast of that midfield and sort of what's happening with the points throughout. Uh, and they tried it in the last episode here with like some tension between Alpine and McLaren that was just like kind of a you know want want you know it, it it wasn't really that close. You know they really had to like work hard to try to make it seem like it was close. So um, that's where I'm at with this season. On the whole, I give it a solid. B plus, but I really do give those episodes in the middle uh, A plus marks. Yeah, you know it's funny because uh, I remember uh, you know getting some messages from from uh, other friends that were watching it and say, "Oh yeah, episodes five and six, oh that's where it really gets going." And I'm on episode two. I'm like, "Oh, don't tell me the season's going to be a slow burn, and I got to grind through another two and a half episodes before it really gets good," you know. But I mean, just in general, like I, I find like the the series itself just enjoyable because I mean the presentation is stunning. The like the, the imagery, the the clips. Like just the the whole packaging. I mean, it, it is it's just such a sensory treat, you know. And I, I love some of the sequences that they they do when, like, especially like at Silverstone, when the when they have like that opening lap 
crash with the with the Joe Guan Yu, where you have all the cars on the grid and all of a sudden it kind of goes to like the super slow-mo. You get the boop as the first red light goes on and you get this dramatic music and it flashes to different images of cars on the grid or somebody on the pit wall and like something which is usually over in like a, in a matter of seconds, you know, it gets it gets extended over, I don't know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever it is. And then it goes into that first corner and then bang, all of a sudden that that incident happens. Joe's car goes on to onto the on, onto the roll bar. It's it's skidding down the track on the halo. Just like the whole that that whole sequence, I mean, is just like I remember watching the race when it when it happened and I was horrified and then I was watching it again and just the emotion and 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 I knew at that point I mean it was it was a good news story that he got up he walked away and he didn't even have a scratch on him kind of thing right but I mean to to watch it the way that they packaged that sequence up and how it played out over those couple of minutes I'm like this is to me is what what Drive to Survive is all about because the emotion and the the feelings I had were so powerful. I'm like, this is cool. This is really, you know, something quite interesting, especially when you see like the slow motion camera angles of that crash we didn't really see at the time in that format, you know, in 4K and everything. It's just like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, you can see the individual pieces of gravel flying all over the place, the sparks coming off the, you know, the the the, the halo and the other bits. It was just, it, it was stunning. And to me, that's, that's what I think that is, that is drive to survive at its absolute finest. I don't want to get super period. technical and I know we have to move on to the next point, but Daly, I like that you touched on that quote unquote sensory overload that for the vast majority of us, we consume Formula One through social media. So really low quality, super pixelated videos. We probably watch the race, mm-hmm. but it's probably on our phone or our laptop and it's never 4K. Whether, whether you're watching on ESPN, TSN, or the F1 TV Pro app, none of us are watching it in 4K. So in a sense, Drive to Survive is a bit of a treat because it's the only opportunity that we have to see any Formula One in 4K HDR. And to me, you and I'm, I'm a bit of a technology guy and I love having a great TV and I love having it calibrated and all, the, all that kind of stuff. But the reality is... I don't get to see F1 in this level of fidelity at any other opportunity. So I really relish sitting there and see the color pop off the cars. And even if it's even if it's two people standing in the countryside in a vineyard and there's a beautiful camera and they've compressed the background and they've isolated the subjects, like they just they make it very cinematic and we never get to consume F1 like that at any other opportunity. So for me, it's important. And regardless of the nar- the narratives that they're they're packaging up and they're pitching or they're selling to us, just the presentation is is enough for me to generally be generally be be satisfied. All right. This is my last big hot grand prix take which is um drive to survive uh does not care about f1 fans drive to survive cares about drive to survive fans and and i don't think that's like a bad thing necessarily but here uh, i here is the 100% proof point at the end of the season we did not get a single moment about the career of sebastian vettel but we did get a montage <laughs> of Danny Ricardo moments from Drive to Survive. Uh, and I, I'm totally fine with it. I have no issue with it. 
but it really solidified for me the point of view that I think I've expressed in a number of ways throughout this episode um, about this season as a whole, which is like, I, I think fans of, I think F1 fans would maybe enjoy the show a little more if they applied the expect like appropriate expectations to it, you know, um, or at least fair expectations to it. Um, which is to say like, you, you gotta remember you're watching a TV show that is not trying to be the definitive record of the season. It's not trying to recap the season in detail. It's not trying to make you understand the championship. Keep in mind, they don't even talk about the the fact that there is a Q1, Q2, Q3. I didn't even great point. I didn't yeah. know that was a thing <laughs> until I started. Wa- I was so confused by qualifying when I first started watching. I think I even when we first started messaging um, Hamilton, I, I think I even said like, <laughs> "How do I watch this? Like, what am I supposed to be looking for?" And you got to remember, I think that the majority of people that are watching this show don't ever watch Formula One. They're just watching a, a like a cool reality show about attractive rich dudes who like might die at any moment flying around the coolest cities in the world. And I think more Drive to Survive fans who are also F1 fans might be more at peace to remember that. I thought for a second you were talking about me when you said attractive rich uh, rich guys, but then I I also realized that you know that doesn't describe me like not even a single one of those descriptors, anyways. But yeah, you know I think that is a great point though, uh, Seth. I, I think Drive to Survive caters to DTS fans and also some Formula One fans because the one difference between Seb and Danny Ricardo is Ricardo's been featured in every single season since day one, and and Vettel wasn't in the beginning because he was still at Ferrari at that point at, at uh, when it first, la- or first launched, pardon me. And Ferrari and Mercedes, they didn't participate initially. So anything that we saw of Lewis or Sebastian or Valtteri back, and I guess Kimi back in those days was just stock footage that might have been you know, occasionally dropped into an episode from from a press conference or some kind of interview. It was just kind of like, you know, Lewis is around, but we don't have anything that he did for us. But here's a five second quote from Lewis from a, from a press conference kind of thing, and and that's okay. But the 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 other thing is too is that you know, like if um, you know, we kind of go back to my comments at the beginning that on the the personality scale, if Danny Ricardo is a ten and Max Verstappen is a one, then Seb would be what a solid seven and a half out of 10 on the personality scale so you know maybe there there's that but i mean you can tell right then and there that you know it is towards you know cater towards the dts fans because ricardo's won what seven grand prix or something like that i don't remember off the top of my head i mean sebastian four-time world champion and just on that alone before you go into the other records and stats that uh, that go beside his name in the record book, you think if anybody was deserving of a, a montage right then and there, it'd be Sebastian just based on his resume. But hey, you know, like I say, Drive to Survive is its its own thing. They do things in their own way. And ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm cool with that. And what, what I like about it in general is that it drops a week or two before the start of the new season. It's It's been like that for the last several years. And I don't really care if there's some like little inaccuracies, like the, the radio mixing up like the whole Akon thing and, you know, taking a bit of audio from another race and dropping it in because ultimately, you know, 
I kind of get that there's like a lot of artistic license applied to it, and I'm fine with that. At the end of the day, I get excited about the season that's coming up. I'm like, oh, these are some of kind of the interesting or cool or sad or depressing or infuriating, whatever things that happened the year before. It's like, okay, that that's fine. That's over and done with. Let's let's get on to the new season because I'll be honest. I watch DTS. I watch it once and I don't typically go back. I've never watched a season a second time. I've watched all of them, but I've watched them only once. And then it's just kind of like my 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 new season ritual. So I am going to quickly bang out my two final Grand Prix Drive to Survive hot takes daily. I hope to have you react to them. Then we're going to take a quick break, come out and quickly burn through our cool down lap takes. But my final two Grand Prix takes are this. And Oh, wait, did I make it out of Q1? I guess so, because I'm still here, right? <laughs> You're doing great. Doing great. Okay. Yes. Okay, so, Amy, go I for it, I think the opposition to this take might be the same as my take about the lack of perspective and focus on the technology side of the sport. But one of the major omissions from this episode of Drive to Survive, and it really has been from all four seasons, but it was more notable this year, was the total lack of discussion about the FIA and the endless challenges that they had with governing the championship. And I'm talking about the fallout from AD, the fact that it took forever to get a report. There was the fallout from the distribution of the cost cap compliance certificates, that they missed the deadline, that there was a leak at all. And we were even talking about it in advance of the cost cap compliance certificate distribution. There was a tractor on a live track in Japan. There was the technical directive that was super confusing for porpoising. And then there was the jewelry ban that was seeming directed at one person. The list goes on and on and on. My sense is the FIA got a total free pass in this season because if they'd wanted to, they could have dug into any one of these and made them a story. And they chose not to. And I kind of get why. But at the same time, I totally think they got a free pass because so much of what you and I talked about, Mark, for all of last year was self-inflicted unnecessary issues that were being manufactured by the FIA. We didn't discuss any of it. Now, my final point, Mark, before I let you react is this hot take. Will Buxton has to go. Please, please, please (laughs) replace him full time with Jenny Gao. I don't get how he was officially anointed the authority on everything F1. Because think about this, for people that are coming into the sport now, they're probably coming in through Drive to Survive and they see this guy on a pedestal narrating the sport that he is the historical record keeper, the subject matter expert. And I don't buy any of that. To me, he shouldn't be the one that has this role, shouldn't have this responsibility. And I think Jenny Gao would do a much, much, much better job of of driving the narration of this this product. Daily, before we go to a break, any thoughts on what I just uh, what I just proclaimed? Yeah, absolutely. Like the to the first uh, point uh, when you came to the just criticism of the FIA, it just uh, kind of goes back to what the three of us have uh, mentioned it several times since we started this uh, reaction show. Is it, it seems that any controversial or critical, you know, criticism about anyone, they didn't really go there. It doesn't matter if it was Checo or Red Bull or the FIA or Ferrari, what whatever it is. It's just like it, it kind of 
came there it kind of popped up onto the the onto the radar screen and then kind of like very quickly disappeared without really getting you know diving into the you know the the bigger and deeper and the more profound uh, questions so yeah i i totally uh you know i, I second what you say there and the the F- fia totally got a free pass because you know the season starts you get like a little bit of a, a recap of what happened on on abu dhabi you've got like toto on the radio talking to michael Masio. yo michael this isn't right and you know the frustration the exasperation so you get like a midi recap and then it just sort of like disappears right you know it just it never pops up in the narrative again and then and that's you know unfortunate at best and then when it comes to to, to will buxton yeah, I mean, for for me, I think his best before date has passed, and you know, I'd be much happier to see somebody else come in. Like I think uh, Jenny Gao was a great shout, uh, like you say, uh, Hammy. I mean, he was he was around for the first couple of seasons, but his shtick is kind of like really kind of. I'm kind of over it right now. It's it's time to give somebody else a, a shot at doing uh, what what he does. You know, his he, he is who he is, but I think there's you know a lot. You know, I think. You know, there's better choices out there that could do the same. same On that job. note, I feel like we owe Athletic Greens a little bit of airtime, so we're going to take a quick break, <laughs> and when we get back, we are going to jump into our cool down lap takes, and then wrap the show up. We'll be back in just a jiffy. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me once again, Mr. Mark Daly, Mr. Seth Whiteberg. We are in the cool down lap segment to wrap up this podcast. And I'm reading here from Seth's beautifully articulate outline. But after the searing heat of turning the engines all the way up, let's wind down with some super quick observations. Nothing serious, just the remaining fun nuggets from the season as we wind down and pull into the pits. Seth, on that note, I'll kick it over to you. Okay, so in episode five, um, I really wanted to look up the wine that uh, Otmar and uh, Laurent Rossi, is that his name? Uh, the the, yes. C- the Alpine, Alpine CEO. Um, I did find it. It is, um, uh, forgive my pronunciation, a Louis Latour Puigny Montrachet. 2021. Um, it, Ooh, does, la la. it does have 91 points from James Suckling. Uh, it's it's uh, it's on sale right now on wine.com for uh, well, if you buy six, if you if you buy six or more, it's only $126 a bottle. Um, it looks absolutely delicious. A white burgundy, a Chardonnay grape, and um, really made me want to drink some wine. <laughs> you know, it was so funny that uh, I, when I was looking over the outline that you said a couple of days ago, Seth, I was watching the show at that exact moment. And I, when I read that point, you know, that I got to that point of the outline, I swear I heard like liquids being dispensed. And I look, I, I look over because I was, I was going back and forth between my laptop and my phone. I'm like, no, they're not. And, and that was that moment. It was such a, a funny synchronicity. But yeah, you know, like $130, it seems like a lot, but for, you know, Formula One, I guess, is that kind of like on-brand, off-brand? But much like yourself, Seth, I was awfully tempted at that moment to uh, to uh, enjoy a nice glass of a uh, nice glass of wine. But another nice moment that I enjoyed watching was, uh, I guess, it was at Miami. Was Charles doing burnouts in somebody else's uh, Ferrari, which I would love to do. Lo- I just love to get behind the you know somebody else's Ferrari and do stuff to it that I would not do if that was my own Ferrari. And then just on a, a, another side. Side note, Charles says he's like he's admiring a Ferrari F40, which I guess is probably came out in the early 1990s. He said something to the effect of that is his dream car. And I'm like, that is my absolute favorite Ferrari road car of all, all time and my dream car as well. Unfortunately, 
unlike Charles Leclerc, I do not have the means to purchase one, but I can dream about it. And I, I do have a little model one just out of the screen here. I could show you guys. Wait, was that? Which the- sounds kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> No, models are models are adorable. The um the uh <laughs> the um is that the car we saw when they were shooting the the gas commercial? Or I, that- I guess it was. You know, there there was. I think there's. I think it was something. I I I was kind of distracted watching that because it was like a bit of a side kind of a sidebar to the episode, and then I just remember him kind of like going around. There's like tires squealing and smoke coming around. I'm like, I wish I could do burnouts like that in somebody else's car, but I think that was the same one. But that whole kind of like. That, that whole Shell gas commercial, that was kind of funny, too, because I think Carlos was taking it a lot more serious than Charles was. They, both of them are also such bad actors that <laughs> I, I actually could have watched outtakes from that forever. Um, my next one um, is, uh, as you note, Daily, a little cringy. I had never heard the term... Chinese whispers before uh, Toto said that. Uh, yeah. we, we, you know, feel free to... Uh, delete this from the episode <laughs> if um I, I i genuinely don't know how unpolitically correct it is um i was like well they left it in the episode yeah. so it is Very that just like a, a a thing i yeah. don't, haven't heard of because i i literally had to google it i was like oh telephone telephone game um yeah you know that, that's why I, I don't mind to leaving it in the podcast because they left it into the show because like like when i heard it like i i i'd heard that like a long time ago like you know from you know like my people in my parents' generation. And I always kind of thought that was like a bit inappropriate then. So, I mean, it stood out for me because like, I thought it was, you know, borderline inappropriate at the very, very best. And I'm surprised it kind of like, you know, made, made the cut. I mean, I'm not, you know, I I don't know anything, you know, I don't want, you know, prompted Toto to say it. It was just kind of one of those funny moments. I'm just like, why did they leave this in? Because like they did such a, like, especially in retrospect, because that was in one of the earlier episodes is like, they did such a job to kind of like avoid anything else that cast any of these teams, like in a negative light. And for me, that was like a very politically incorrect moment. And I'm like, you know, when I, when I look back at it at the end of it, when I saw it in your notes, I'm like, I'm surprised that made it in when all the other negative things that could have been brought up in any of the other episodes is like, it seemed they went out of their way to avoid it. And this one stayed. All right. Just a few to go here at the uh, top of episode six, where the Horners are camping. I'm pretty sure they were just camping on their own <laughs> property, <laughs> which is such a flex. I love that estate. It is so bougie and fancy to keep going back there. I can't, right? get, I can't get enough of it. I love the fact that they were just like literally camping like in their backyard. Bravo. Yeah, I, I want to know, like, where do they, like, I, I want more details on this. Like, this is definitely one of those, like, where do the Horners do their shopping? Are they getting their wieners, hot dog wieners from Walmarts? Or is it something a little bit more posh and a little bit more more Formula One? But I thought that I thought that was kind of a cool moment. It was very real. It was very relatable. Although I don't go camping on my, like, you know, 150 acre estate or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is that they own. But it was kind of funny. It's like, it, 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 to be Christian all seemed like uncomfortable like the idea of like sleeping in something that wasn't you know five star or you know their their luxury mansion like that they're because like wasn't there like some sort of like like a vw camper van i, I can't remember what kind of like what, what the make was but there was like this camper van on the side of the field and it just like he looked very much out of his element and i thought it was hilarious yeah he definitely did not spend the night out there um okay my last 
uh, little cool down take here is for me, the line of the entire season, which was so genuinely funny, is at the end of the big blow up between Toto and Horner and the team principals. They all stand up and they turn to go, and Gunter just says, Time to go porpoising. <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, just fantastic. He had so many great moments throughout throughout the season, as always. I also thought it was very interesting that they kept in multiple references to people talking to him about being famous because of the show. Very meta in that regard. Um, interest, yeah. Interesting choice to leave it in. I have to believe they left that in because they really wanted to like show you, no, this really is like a significant aspect of this guy's life now <laughs> is this the personality that he's fostered on the show. But he really does pay it off over and over and over again. What a gem. Uh, My job, final Gunther. take is also a Gunther take, and it's more more an observation, but I thought it was a little bit surreal to see Gunther with his daughter on a jet ski on a lake next to their home in North Carolina. I just, I thought that whole scene was just like out of place and surreal. And when they introduced the scene, I'm like, that doesn't look like Austria. That doesn't look like Italy. And of course it turned out to be North Carolina. And of course there was a scene later in the show where he was being interviewed at Austin and someone's like, what, what y'all, what y'all think of these here America? And he's like, I, it's a short flight. I live here. But uh, I thought it was, I thought it was great. Wait, Hamilton, do you know who that was? That was Will Arnett. No. Was that Will? That was Will. Go back to that moment. That was Will Arnett and Michelle Beadle. I didn't even notice. And you yeah. only see it on their backs. Um, I wrote it down. I, 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 I'll try to look it up where it is in case people wanted to go back and look at it. I understand, or I, yeah. I'm a, I've been made it's aware that they have their own Formula One podcast as well. And made aware <laughs> because I think this show was advertising for it for the better part of six months. But, <laughs> but yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, they never show their yeah. faces, but that's that is that is Arnett and Beetle. That, that that's so funny because I remember that comment and it really stood out in whichever episode it was, but it didn't click until you brought it up and like, oh my god, it's like as soon as you it, it brought it into sharp focus. Daily, yeah, the wow, final two wow. takes are are yours, my friend. Yeah, so um, you know, Seth had mentioned it as well. Like, I love that whole sequence with the uh, uh, Mick uh, and his personal trainer on the bikes in the in the mountains uh, surrounding Geneva. I thought that was really cool. I'm a bike guy. I'm a cyclist, so it was just a, it was just a fantastic. And I thought it was such a sharp contrast from and and perhaps this is why they decided to throw it in there. You have the mayhem and just the you know the you know the the big you know, circus that Formula One is. And then you get this quiet moment of two guys on bikes riding out in the middle of nature and then sitting down in this alpine pasture, just like looking at this out of this world view in Switzerland, just just sort of talking about things. I, I thought it was it was such a cool moment. And it was just, uh, I, I thought it it did such a, a good job just kind of like changing the the, the focus from, from everything else that we've been watching about on the track and off the track. I thought it was really cool. And then, then finally, I was disappointed that Pumpernickel Toast <laughs> didn't make it into <laughs> Drive to Survive. I know that, that that's a bit of a personal joke, but uh, also I enjoy Pumpernickel Toast, and I thought it was kind of funny that uh, Toto was uh, you know brought it up in the previous season. So I was kind of hoping for you know because that's one other thing I have in common with Toto, which I think makes him like 
two very irrelevant things, but it was just I kind love of any of the food stuff. Any anytime they show us any food things, I'm so excited. Like I love the detail of like Ghastly walking by the croissants and being like, nope, can't do those. And then two yes. seconds later, Yuki like just dangling one from his mouth. Just like any <laughs> of the food, give it to me. All know, right? Gentlemen, we yeah. are clocking in currently at one hour and 45 minutes, one of the longest episodes we've ever done. Seth, it's very late of in the Brooklyn week. Daily. It's late <laughs> here on the Pacific Coast. I'm going to let both of you go. Thank you so much for sitting down and doing this tonight. To everybody listening, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed this. If you do, make sure you track us down on Twitter at f one pod And if you like what we do, please make sure to give us a rating on Spotify and or a rating and review on Apple, uh, we would be honored. On that note, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.